Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai. I'm Alison Balance and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ. Before I sign off the show in a few weeks' time, I am reflecting on my time at RNZ and on the wide range of topics we've covered over the more than 16 years that Our Changing World has been on air. A constant theme has been climate change and the impact of rising levels of carbon dioxide on the planet. Back in 2010, I recorded a feature called The Acid Test. It looked at research underway here in New Zealand to try and anticipate the likely impacts of ocean acidification. Ocean acidification has been called global warming's evil twin, but it doesn't make the news nearly as often. So I thought it was time to remind ourselves of the impact of our carbon dioxide emissions on the sea and the things that live in it. Here's that 2010 feature, which I'll follow with a brief update of what we've learned in the decades since. Ocean acidification has been called many things. The other CO2 problem, and even global warming's evil twin. But what is it, and what does it mean for the chemistry of the world's oceans, and for marine life? The oceans absorb about a third of the CO2 that's emitted into the atmosphere. CO2 goes up, pH goes down. As the pH of the ocean drops, they're living basically in a more corrosive environment. Strongest and earliest effects in the Southern Ocean. Much faster than thousands of years. There's going to be winners and losers. We will be seeing reduced growth rates. Smaller species will be the winners. So that has knock-on effects right the way up the food chain. I'm Alison Balance with the ACID test. In this Our Changing World special, we look at research into ocean acidification, taking place both in New Zealand and in Antarctica. Phil Heath manages Niwa's experimental hatchery at Mahanga Bay in Wellington. He first noticed how carbon dioxide causes water to acidify on a small scale in relation to power being grown in hatchery conditions. Power particularly interesting. We started off looking at onshore facilities for farming of power and we were noticing some, some of the shells dissolving. And when we dug a little bit further around this, we found that that was linked to build-up of carbon dioxide in the water just because these systems were closed and the animals were breathing out carbon dioxide. We then got talking to our ocean chemists and found that actually this, this was happening in the wider ocean as well, that increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was leading to more CO2 in the water and, and acidification. So we started to see effects that were happening in an aquaculture facility were actually going to happen to the, the abalone population in the wild and, and in open sea farms and, and flow-through farms. That was generally a concern, particularly when we started to look at hatchery side of things. And we realised that larval power just weren't going to form shells at the low pHs that were predicted to happen in the wild. And of course, if they don't form shells, they're not going to settle or grow. University of Otago marine biologist Miles Lemire is also concerned at the effect that increasing ocean acidity may have on the larvae of marine species. So if you're trying to understand how marine populations are going to be affected by a changing ocean, in this case ocean acidification, what you want to do is focus on the most vulnerable part of their life cycle. And in marine invertebrates, 
the most vulnerable part of their life cycle is their larval stage. They're small, they're out in the plankton, they're struggling to survive very high mortality. They're in embryological stage, so there's lots of cell division going on, you know, a lot of DNA replication. So our approach to understanding how marine systems are going to be affected by ocean acidification is to understand how the larval stages are going to be affected. Ocean acidification is directly linked to increasing global levels of carbon dioxide, as Niwa scientist Cliff Law explains. As a result of the uh, increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that's resulting from the combustion of fossil fuels, the CO2 is getting into the ocean, and the ocean takes up about 25% to 30% of the CO2 we emit. And this is good because it means the ocean's a sink for that CO2, but the trouble is it's having this effect on the chemistry of the ocean. Each day the world's oceans are absorbing about 30 million tonnes of carbon dioxide. This carbon dioxide reacts very quickly with water and the result is a weak acid called carbonic acid. Exactly the same effect occurs in a carbonated fizzy drink. Add CO2 and the resulting carbonic acid gives plain soda water that slightly sour taste. Now the issue isn't quite as simple as carbonic acid being the direct cause of ocean acidification, as University of Otago chemist Christina McGraw explains. So the CO2 reacts with water to form carbonic acid. From there that can dissociate to form a proton and bicarbonate. Now this is significant because um, this increase in the number of protons is increasing the acidity of the ocean. So the ocean's pH have dropped by about... 0.1 pH units since the start of the Industrial Revolution. This doesn't sound like much, but pH is on the log scale, so it corresponds to about a 30% increase in acidity. Essentially, pH is a measure of hydrogen ion concentration, hydrogen being the proton that Christina McGraw mentioned. The pH scale goes from 1 to 14, with 1 being extremely acidic. Think battery acid. Anything between 1 and 7 is acidic, Pure water is a neutral 7, while anything above 7 is alkaline or basic. Think bleach. Like the Richter scale for measuring earthquakes, the pH scale is logarithmic, which means each whole pH value is 10 times more acidic than the next higher value. So pH 4 is 10 times more acidic than pH 5 and 100 times more acidic than pH 6. Before the Industrial Revolution, and before we began emitting large amounts of carbon dioxide by burning fossil fuels, the world's oceans had a pH of about 8.2, so slightly basic. Over the last 200 years, that pH has dropped to about 8.1. It's still a long way from being an acid, but that drop in pH is nonetheless a 30% increase in acidity. And if we continue to emit CO2 at present rates, Ocean acidity is expected to drop to a pH of 7.8 or even 7.7 by the year 2100. That would be a 150% increase in acidity compared to that pre-industrial figure of 8.2. While pH measures the concentration of hydrogen ions, there is another way of measuring CO2 absorption in the world's oceans, as University of Otago-based Niwa chemist Kim Curry explains. Now, I personally think in carbon dioxide concentration, and the unit I think of is a partial pressure of CO2, so pCO2, which is really closely tied into pH, but it works back the front. So when pCO2 goes up, pH goes down. Kim Curry has been measuring the partial pressure of CO2 in waters off the coast of Otago since 1998. 
I'm interested in the chemistry of carbon dioxide in seawater. So that consists of dissolved carbon dioxide, bicarbonate ions and carbonate ions. And I'm particularly interested in what happens at the surface, so how the ocean is interacting with the atmosphere and what's happening right at that surface level and then further down in the mixed layer. Her bi-monthly sampling trips have become a valuable long-term record of oceanic CO2 levels in New Zealand waters, known as the Munita Time Series. We can see that at the beginning of the record from 1998 to around about 2003 the PCO2 went down and then it started going up. So in the atmosphere the carbon dioxide concentration is going up fairly um, constantly. There's a seasonal um, up and down but the, the long term record's going up. Whereas what we're seeing off the coast here is periods of up and periods of down. But it looks like now that we've got more than 10 years worth that the longer term trend is up in PCO2 and down in pH. These units here are pretty comparable to the um, units that we measure carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in. So in 1997 we started at 350 and we've come up now to around about 360. That's the long-term trend, but of course there's the interannual variability and the seasonal variability on top of that. While Kim Curry has become skilled at measuring small changes in PCO2, her colleague Malcolm Reid is very skilled at measuring minute changes in pH. He's developed an automated system that works equally well in the lab or on a wave-tossed boat. It's capable of very high precision. With this good spectrophotometer and good temperature control, we've found that we can resolve differences in the fourth decimal place. So we can measure a difference between 7.8000 and 7.8002. That's very challenging and doesn't occur without a lot of care being taken. Malcolm Reid's pH measurement system works alongside Kim Curry's PCO2 measurements in the Munita time series. So what has he found? So we have a reasonable length of time of reasonably regular cruises and the data from that when we apply long-term models through it is hinting that there is a decrease in pH. It's not dramatic yet, the difference is a small, it's a sensitive analysis and that's why I guess we aren't going to trumpet the fact that we're seeing a small trend until we're really sure about it. Although the New Zealand chemists are cautious about reading too much into their findings just yet, the increasing levels of CO2 in seawater and the slight downward trend in pH they're recording are consistent with trends being seen in other locations. While measuring PCO2 and pH in the ocean is a complex and challenging task, so too are attempts to try and quantify what effects the changes in ocean chemistry might have on marine life. As a result, much of this work is being done in the laboratory. Chemist Christina McGraw explains the system she's developed for controlling pH in a series of culture tanks. So right now we're in Waterworld, which is a chemistry lab at the University of Otago. And we're looking at one of the culture tanks that we've built as part of a big collaborative project where we can grow different vulnerable organisms under conditions that really mimic New Zealand seawater. So what we do is we have this tank of CO2, it's just food grade CO2, so the same stuff that might be used uh, to carbonate your fizzy drinks. And we have these little pinch valves, they're really tiny, and you see this thin tubing going through it, and it's just got this little arm that goes up and down and up and down. So what it does is it opens for a short time and lets just a tiny pulse of CO2 into the seawater. And just based on those chemical reactions, that's going to end up forming 
are protons, making the water more acidic. It's very exciting, this new system. And I don't think there's anyone else in the world who's built a system like this with the level of precision that we have and the level of replication that we have. So why are botanists, such as the University of Otago's Katrina Hood, who we've just heard from, so concerned about the impacts of ocean acidification? Niwa's Helen Bostock explains. The ocean acidification problem, we understand the chemistry relatively well and we understand the physics, so the exchange of the CO2 between the atmosphere and the oceans, we understand why that happens and we understand how the CO2 gets taken down into the oceans and stored in there. What we don't understand is how the biological organisms will respond to these chemical changes. And that's the big problem for the future understanding of ocean acidification is not will it happen, it's how will ecosystems and flora and fauna that live in the oceans respond to those changes. We heard earlier from Christina McGraw how CO2 dissolves in water to create a weak acid that then splits to become bicarbonate and a hydrogen ion or proton. For many marine creatures, that's where the problem starts. We suddenly have all these extra protons in the water that can react with the free carbonate. So calcifying organisms use this carbonate to build their shells and skeletons and when instead that's being taken up by these excess protons that have been created by the CO2, that means that there's suddenly less carbonate for the organisms. Another cause of concern is the speed with which changes are taking place. Katrina Hurd. The rate of change of carbon dioxide now is very fast. It's about 100 times faster than it ever has been before due to human influences. So what experiments are the botanists planning to run in Christina McGraw's culture system? We're going to be bringing in a range of different seaweeds. Some of them are calcifiers, some are not calcifiers. And these seaweeds have different ways of taking up and using carbon. And we're going to see how each of those groups responds to ocean acidification. And then we're also going to be looking at phytoplankton. And we're going to bring in a range of phytoplankton, also ones that calcify and ones that don't calcify, and see how they respond. Niwa's Cliff Law is also concerned about the effects of ocean acidification on phytoplankton. As the pH of the ocean drops, they're living basically in a more corrosive environment where they can't maintain their shell structure. Well, we're interested in about three or four different groups. So I'll start off with the phytoplankton. The ones that we're interested in are called coccolithophores. Their shell is composed of a number of overlaying circular plates, which are called liths, and these are formed of calcium carbonate. The second group is uh, protozoa called foraminifera that also have carbonate shells. And the third group is a, is a large group of larger organisms, a type of sea snail and mollusk called pteropods. And between the three of them, they're quite important, partly because they control the total uh, supply of carbonate down into the deep ocean when they sink out. So they maintain this carbonate supply around the ocean, but they're also important in transferring organic carbon down to the deep ocean. When they sink, they die, and they take this organic carbon with them, and that maintains the ocean's carbon sink. They're also important in the food chain. I mean, other bigger organisms feed on these, and they slowly feed up through fish production. So we're taking certain species and just running them in uh, incubations with different levels of CO2. We both do this in the lab with cultures, and we do it out at sea because then we have the natural populations, and we have mixed populations of all different things as well because they'll all interact, and that will have an effect. It's early days yet for these experiments, but similar efforts overseas indicate some likely results. There's obviously a lot of international work going on in this field and 
the interesting thing is that people are showing all sorts of different results. Take these coccolithophores, for example. Some are increasing the amount of carbonate and some are decreasing the amount of carbonate in response to higher CO2. And that's really complicating the story is that we can't really say what's going on. And that's why there's a need for us to, to do it specifically with New Zealand organisms so we can say what's going on in our own backyard. Abby Smith is a biogeochemist at the University of Otago. Her speciality is bryozoans. Bryozoans come in every possible shape and size. I can show you pictures of bryozoans that look like lentils and bryozoans that look like sticks and bryozoans that look like flowers and bryozoans that look like lumps and trees and whatever. They're usually not more than 5 to 10 centimetres, but they're usually very, very highly calcified, which means they're hard. So they sometimes make their skeleton out of uh, one flavor of calcium carbonate, and calcite, and sometimes they make it out of aragonite, which is another way of making the same chemical, and sometimes they make it out of both, and sometimes they take their calcite and they add magnesium to it, and sometimes they don't, and sometimes they have both in the one skeleton, and sometimes they're, when they're more than one mineral, those minerals are in really obvious different places on the skeleton, and other times they're all mixed up together. And the great thing is that if you have this group, which is both variable in terms of its shape and in terms of its composition. So calcite and aragonite, the two basic chemical building blocks, they react differently to increasingly acidic conditions? That's right. Aragonite is less stable and more soluble. So it's more vulnerable and more likely to dissolve. And if I had two cubes made of inorganic calcite and aragonite, the aragonite cube would dissolve faster and first. But I don't have cubes. I have trees and lentils and globs and all these other shapes. And so the question then becomes, what's the surface area to volume ratio? You know that people who are big and thick stay warm and people who are thin have a lot more surface area for their volume and they get cold. So that's exactly the same philosophy, essentially, with bryozoans, that the more surface area they have, like the crumpled up piece of paper one, the cornflake coral, has a lot of surface area for not much volume, whereas the big globby one that looks almost like a rugby ball, that is going to be way more difficult to dissolve. And then on top of that, you have the different mineralogies. And it means that you can take examples of these and pop them into some acid, a very, very weak acid, so they don't disappear instantly, and um, have a look at how fast they dissolve. It turns out that it's the surface area to volume ratio that matters more. If it's the same, then the aragonite will dissolve sooner. But some of the things that are very robust and made of 100% aragonite will last much, much, much longer than things that are made of calcite but have surface area to volume issues where they're more exposed to seawater or a lot more their surface is exposed to seawater. So what exactly happens to bryozoan skeletons exposed to acidic seawater? This is a picture of a single bryozoan. This is one that hasn't been damaged at all, and you can see that it's got very neatly organized walls and little dots and perfect little openings with a lip around the outside. And then this is one that's been dissolved until it's 80% of its original weight. And what's happened is all the holes have gotten bigger, And a lot of the detail of the little walls and little stripes has disappeared. And essentially, it's become a good deal smoother. By the time it's only half of its original weight, the holes have gotten much larger. Some of them have coalesced and started to become one great big hole. And there's absolutely no surface detail. And this picture shows them at 20% of its original size. And they're like great big pits in a, in, a, in a mess. They don't look anything like it. In fact, you couldn't identify the species. You could barely tell that it was a bryozoan. These results are from the skeletons of dead bryozoans. What's the effect of increasing acidity on a live creature whose skeleton is covered in living tissue? 
Miles Lemire has been looking at that issue in larval sea urchins, growing them under various levels of acidity and then examining their skeletons under a scanning electron microscope. He's seeing some significant changes. When you grow them in low pH, what we see is nice, smooth surface that you see. It looks like it's basically rotting, rougher, pitted. And that's either because when they've laid the skeleton down, they haven't been able to lay it down properly, or alternatively, it's actually been laid down, but it's been eroded. And that may be actually a a way that the animal is regulating its internal pH. If an animal is grown in low pH, its tissues may start to acidify, and its cells may acidify in a process called cellular acidosis, which is acidifying the cellular fluids. But one way that you might be able to moderate that acidification or that acidosis is to actually dissolve your skeleton, which in this case is calcium carbonate, which is just like chalk. And we looked at the organic content or the amount of skeleton that laid down, and in normal larvae it ranges from 17 to 60% of their body weight is made up of the skeleton. But when you grow them in low pH, you can see a reduction in, in that skeleton biomass or skeleton mass by anywhere between 36 to about 4%. So whenever you grow them in low pH, they don't calcify as much or they're using that skeleton to try and buffer the effects. This is a little like osteoporosis for sea urchins? (laughs) Yeah, I suppose so. They're not too hunched up at this stage, but yeah. So what are the implications of calcifying animals such as bryozoans become unable to calcify and grow their skeletons? The fear is that it could have dramatic impacts on entire ecosystems. Otago is a special place because just about 40 kilometres offshore in about 80 metres of water depth, there are these extensive bryozoan thickets where there's all sorts of shelter and substrate and they end up producing enormous biodiversity out on the mid-shelf, which otherwise would just be like a parking lot. If bryozoans are the major habitat for many other creatures living in this offshore parking lot, then coralline algae, a kind of calcifying plant, fulfils the same role in subtidal areas along the coast, as PhD student Chris Cornwall explains. Coralline algae are extremely important in not only in temperate rocky environments but also in coral reef environments. Um, they provide substrate for settlement um, for many different marine invertebrates. Off the top of my head, power especially, um, they settle on the coralline algae and on bacteria that grows on the coralline algae. So without the coralline algae, you essentially you've got no, no power in a lot of these invertebrates. Chris Cornwall's supervisor Katrina Hurd has been looking at the response of a coralline algae called Arthocardia to different levels of acidity. Those data are pretty interesting. The growth decreased as the pH decreased. However, other aspects of the seaweed's physiology seem to get healthier. For example, it seemed more efficient at photosynthesis at lower pH. So it was interesting, and we, we are now repeating that with more replicates. What these and other results are showing is that organisms vary hugely in their responses to changing levels of acidity, and not all responses are negative. So far in this Our Changing World feature on ocean acidification, we've talked only about carbon dioxide and pH levels as if they're tidy, self-contained features. Unfortunately, they aren't. Kim Curry again. So there's a couple of things that affect PCO2 and pH. One is that the the temperature has a big effect. So the partial pressure of CO2 is higher at a higher temperature and lower at a lower temperature. So therefore you get summer-winter differences. Another major thing that affects carbon dioxide is that plants in the water, 
phytoplankton use it for photosynthesis. So in spring when the plants are growing, they're using carbon out of the water and that will cause a decrease in PCO2. Depth is another important factor. As depth increases, two things happen. Temperature drops and pressure increases. Niwa's Helen Bostock explains. So carbonate becomes more soluble with water depth. So it's a strange mineral because it becomes more soluble at lower temperatures and higher pressures. So as we go deeper through the water column, it becomes more soluble to the point where in a lot of the oceans the the floor is covered by carbonate, but below a certain depth all that carbonate dissolves. So I've been interested in trying to understand where we will find carbonate in the southwest Pacific. And what we found is around New Zealand, the the depth that you find carbonate varies quite a lot. Northeast of New Zealand, we find carbonate down to a depth of about 4,000 metres. But southeast of New Zealand, we find it down to a depth of 4,600 metres. So we're talking deep, deep here. The carbonate saturation horizon, the depth at which we know it starts to dissolve, is about 3,000 metres. So it's another 1,000 metres before it's basically all gone. So cold, deep water is an undersaturated world where animals struggle to find enough carbonate to make shells. Cold Antarctic water suffers the same problem, which is why it's of interest to Niwa's Vonda Cummings. Ocean acidification is, is predicted to happen a lot faster in the Antarctic because it has really cold water already and that means that its carbonate levels are already lower than what they are in in more temperate systems. So the aragonite saturation level in the Antarctic is predicted to be less than 1 by 2030 during the winter in some areas. So, you know, we're expecting changes like that in more temperate areas by maybe the end of the century, but in the Antarctic it's going to happen a lot faster. So it's maybe giving us a bit of an indication of what kinds of things we might expect to see in other areas by studying the Antarctic. Two species of Antarctic mollusks, gooey ducks and scallops, were brought back to Niwa, kept at suitably Antarctic temperatures and exposed to varying levels of acidity for a few months with interesting results. They were producing more of an enzyme that's involved in calcification so they were basically um, working harder to make their shells and we also found that those animals that were in the lowest pH treatment actually lost weight over the five-month period. So there was some kind of dissolution of the shell going on, probably, which is what you would expect in a lower, more acidic seawater. We noticed that they were respiring faster. They had higher oxygen consumption rates and also that they had higher stress protein levels than animals that were um, at the same level as they would be in the Antarctic. So essentially that the animals were working harder to just maintain the status quo, I guess. University of Otago student Jess Erickson has also worked on Antarctic marine creatures. I looked at two polar species, uh, a sea urchin and also a big Nemertian worm, gigantic worm, called Parvalasia corrugatus. And I was looking at what the fertilisation success of these organisms is and how their embryos develop in acidified seawater. Basically what I found is that the responses of the species differs, so the worm was more resilient than the urchin overall to acidification, 
the adults of the worms secrete this acidic right. mucus. It's pH 3.5. And Which they, is extraordinarily acidic. It's very acidic, yeah. And so when they release their gametes into seawater, um, the eggs and sperm are likely to come in contact with this acidic mucus, and so it's possible that their resilience to low-pH seawater might reflect the resilience to the adults' mucus that they've had to adapt to. But while the eggs and sperm of the giant pink worms prove surprisingly resilient to low pH, those of the sea urchin were rather less robust. The fertilisation success decreased in the urchin at low sperm concentrations, and and that's possibly to do with the effect that um, low pH has on sperm motility, so sperm effectively slow down um, in low pH because of the effect that the pH has on their enzyme activities. And so in lower sperm concentrations, there may not be enough active sperm to actually fertilise the eggs. And so this has implications for the open ocean where sperm might be quite diluted and um, in lower pH seawater, the fertilisation success might potentially decrease quite markedly. And if obviously if you can't get fertilised eggs, then you're not going to get any further on. <laughs> That's it, yeah. Jess Erickson and Miles Lamar have also looked at the development of embryos under different pH levels. Across the board you get a process called metabolic depression and that is done by a lot of organisms in response to a stressful situation. I could give you an example, a bear will hibernate because of low food or cold temperatures and when they hibernate they decrease their metabolism and that's the extreme example. But if you take a a sea urchin embryo and you expose it to low pH, it will also undergo metabolic depression as a way of trying to survive this stress. So we've been trying to quantify that by looking at respiration rates in these larvae under normal and, and reduced pH. And you certainly you see about a 30% reduction in metabolism, and that's been done on quite a range of species we've looked at, polar and temperate through to tropical. And living in the plankton is a very tenuous existence. So if it's a very tenuous place to live, the last thing you want to do is, is spend longer in the plankton. So any process which slows down your development which means you're going to be in the plankton longer, means there's going to be fewer that survive. If every day 20% of you are eaten, even spending another five days in the plankton means, you know, that's 20% die, another 20%, another 20%. It's a huge decrease. Paul Thompson from the Australian Antarctic Division in Hobart has been investigating the effect of changing acidity on the microbial loop, which underpins the entire Antarctic food chain. The microbial loop is a very important part of um, the Southern Ocean ecosystem. It's comprised of phytoplankton, that is single-celled plants, protozoa, single-celled animals, and marine bacteria. And the phytoplankton bloom and form huge biomass, and their biomass and the, the biomass of the bacteria are controlled by protozoan grazing. And during the process of this grazing, uh, substrates for bacterial growth are released and the bacteria remineralise these substrates into nutrients that the phytoplankton can then use for further growth. And so uh, through this action within the microbial loop, uh, most of the carbon in the southern ocean is either recycled in surface waters, depending on what the loop's doing, or the microbial loop also determines how much is lost to the deep oceans for geological timescales. We found that the microbial communities were actually very tolerant to change up to two times present-day levels of of PCO2, or carbon dioxide. At higher concentrations uh, or acidities, we found um, very dramatic changes, in fact. We found a change in community size structure and and composition, uh, the types of species, that is, that made up the community, and we found protozoan grazing was inhibited 
under higher PCO2 conditions or acidity. And we also found that bacterial uh, biomass and activity was enhanced by uh, higher PCO2 concentrations. You say the size of organisms change? Tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, well, from pre-industrial times through to 1.7 times present-day levels, the communities were dominated by large uh, single-cell plants called diatoms and uh, with just a background of much smaller cells. And uh, we found that there was a dramatic change in the species composition from two times present-day levels through to conditions we'd expect for uh, the year 2100. And here, here we found no longer were the communities dominated by large diatoms. They were now dominated by very small diatoms and uh, much smaller flagellates. So what are the implications of that? Higher animals will find these uh, different food sources harder to harvest. Uh, smaller cells are much harder to harvest than larger cells, and uh, those smaller cells may not have the same nutritional quality. And we know that uh, krill, which is a key intermediate species uh, between the phytoplankton and uh, larger animals like whales, uh, can only feed down to uh, a sized range of about 6 microns. So we're getting very close to uh, the, the smaller size range uh, they can cope with. So although these changes at a micro level could have effects that ripple right up the Antarctic food chain from krill to whales, they also make the point that many species could actually thrive in more acidic conditions. This comes as no surprise to Miles Lemire, who suspects that many species may be more resilient than we've imagined. When we did this work, we actually found that some of the polar species, particularly the larvae, are actually quite robust. And we think that it's because, well, actually they're already living in an environment where it's hard to calcify already. There's high CO2 concentrations, so in some ways they could be pre-adapted. Yeah, I think it's going to be winners and losers. You know, some species will have a competitive advantage over others, and we're just sort of starting to now get an understanding on, you know, what level that will be, how different will be the responses between different species. But before we get too complacent... Chemist Phil Boyd is quick to remind us that ocean acidification isn't happening on its own. Many other factors are happening at the same time. It's not a standalone problem. It fits into a matrix of concurrent changes that we will see uh, associated with climate change, where many of the factors that uh, impact uh, oceanic plants and animals uh, will be altered, and importantly will be altered at the same time. And some of those other properties include temperature. Obviously, we're going to see a warming. Uh, and the warming will also manifest itself on the ocean in different ways. It will actually, because of its interaction with ocean sort of circulation, will alter the supply of plant nutrients, things that we know commonly as fertilizers like uh, nitrate or phosphate, for example, as used on land, but also things such as trace metals, which are important to prevent some of these plants from becoming anemic. And so putting those together, we're looking at concurrent changes in the light climate, in the temperature, uh, which obviously influences the growth rate, in the supply of nutrients, in the supply of uh, these essential elements, these trace metals, and also uh, in altering pH and uh, CO2. Miles Lemire reinforces that many of these different factors could both cancel one another out or possibly amplify each other. If you expose a, a larvae to low pH, its metabolism will decrease. But if you expose a larvae to warmer temperatures, its metabolism will increase. So what happens when you put the two together? Yeah. One way or the other, increasing levels of CO2 are going to cause change in the world's oceans. Cliff Law.
There will definitely be change, and it's not only it's the interactions out there with other climate drivers like temperature and light, but there will also be positives and negatives. Now, there's a fourth group of plankton that we're interested in, and these are in the subtropical waters north of New Zealand. The production in these waters tends to be limited by the amount of nutrients, and we're interested in a group of cyanobacteria because they fix nitrogen. So in other words, they take nitrogen out of the air, if you like, the actual dinitrogen gas, and they convert it into organic nitrogen in their cells. And by doing this, they not only grow themselves, but they actually, actually bring nitrogen into the system. The interesting fact is that some international studies have shown that high CO2, they actually increase their growth rate and they increase the rate they fix nitrogen. So in other words, here we've got an example of where there could be a positive benefit, where you've got, uh, you know, these nitrogen fixers could be winners because they will not only increase their own growth but actually increase the other growth of the rest of the planktonic population as well. There are many possible scenarios for potential winners and losers. There's going to be 300% more carbon dioxide available for photosynthesis. So some algae may benefit in terms of growth rate from ocean acidification whilst others, like calcifying algae, may suffer. The important effects of ocean acidification might be indirect things rather than direct Certainly if you lose one type of, of plankton, which a grazer is particularly adapted to feed on, then that's gone as well, and so that has knock-on effects right the way up the food chain. So it's a really difficult thing to predict. Bryozoans and mollusks are, are among the best biomineralizers amongst the invertebrates, and they are probably going to be among the best at coping with ocean acidification. I think it's corals and urchins and some things that are less able to respond to differences that actually will have more trouble. Currently coral reefs are growing in, in regions where it's, it's okay but marginal, but in another 50 to 100 years the area of the ocean which is going to be suitable for growing a, an aragonite skeleton, a skeleton which coral reefs grow, is just shrinking all the time. There is a distinct possibility that we could see an impact on fish as well, particularly in the the larval and juvenile forms. As pH in the water falls, it becomes effectively more difficult for those animals to breathe. They're reliant on on a pH balance in the blood to, to transfer oxygen effectively to the cells. So as pH falls, that pH balance changes, and the animal has then an an energetic cost in addressing that balance and therefore if it's using energy just to balance the pH of its blood that's energy that it can't use for growth. So although it's probably not terminal for the animals we will be seeing reduced growth rates in fish and even in shellfish. But hasn't ocean acidity changed significantly in the past? Why does it matter if we change it now? Scientists such as Helen Bostock point out that there is one significant difference between past events and what is happening now. We know that the pH does change in the ocean naturally. The problem is we're changing it rather unnaturally now. There is evidence if you go way back in time to 55 million years ago to the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum where there was a, a big extinction event and a lot of marine organisms died. There was a big shift in the pH and a very short time scale. But when we say short time scale, we still mean thousands of years and then it's taken maybe 50 to 100,000 years for the system to recover. So the timescale we're forcing it to happen now is much faster than thousands of years. It's happening over hundreds of years. Thanks, everyone. That was a 2010 feature called The Acid Test. Now I'm off to Niwa to talk with Cliff Law about where things are at in 2021.
Things have moved on a, a little bit. Um, we're certainly seeing uh, we have more evidence for it happening now. For example, my colleague Kim Curry down in Dunedin has been running a time series for 20 years where she's been monitoring the pH in the water off Otago and that is clearly showing that acidification is happening here and now. So from the data she collects, we can see that over that 20-year period, the water's acidified by about 7%. So we actually know it's happening at this very moment. So it's not a future thing, it's actually happening now. So that's one evidence we got. And we also have evidence from a collection of measurements around the coast that coastal waters, for example, are slightly more acidic than offshore waters. And that's to be expected. You know, we have lots of sources of acidity that go into the, into the ocean there. And that causes the pH to be a bit lower. And so from our monitoring at these different stations, we can see that they're certainly the in terms of acidification, these coastal regions are ahead of the game, if you like, compared to the open ocean. You know, we, we think about it that maybe if we're going to see effects, we might see the effects of acidification in coastal waters first. So we're seeing a measurable change in water acidity. Are we seeing any impact on the things that live in the coastal waters? Well, it's difficult to actually say here and now that these effects are, ha- are happening here because not only these are changes that are happening over, over time, but they also we have to disentangle from them from all the other changes in the coastal environment, like, like the different effects of pollution and sedimentation and warming and other cli- climate variables. So just by making observations in the coastal zone, we can't say this impact is definitely an effect of acidification. But what we can do is do experiments where we're actually changing the acidity of the water and looking at the effects and so we've just done a, uh, had a finished a major kind of national program on coastal acidification where we, we've been looking at species of significance both ecologically and economically to New Zealand and so what we tend to do is we tend to compare their kind of status on their situation now with the with the pH levels that we would expect to see by the end of this century from emission scenarios of carbon dioxide. And so they've shown some interesting things. For example, we've looked at, you know, the phytoplankton and I have to say that in terms of coastal phytoplankton, we don't see much effect of a, of a decrease in pH. And then we've looked at things like um, mussels, for example. And mussels do show generally they're relatively resilient to the pH we'd see later this century. But we do see effects of low pH, particularly on their early life stages. And this early life stages is, a, is a, something that's come up again and again in studies of um, ocean acidification, that particularly in organisms that have a carbon shell because in an ocean acidification world if you like dissolved carbonate will become limited in the water there'll be less of it around and so if you have a carbonate shell it's more difficult to maintain that shell and particularly if you're the early life stage where you've got to grow a shell very quickly it's going to be really challenging and so both our research on mussels and but also lots of international research has shown that it's these early life stages that are most susceptible And critically about this is that what we have shown that particularly for power, their early life stages are really susceptible to uh, low pH at the end of this century. So, for example, we see a higher level of abnormality, particularly in the shells and the survival of of two-day-old larvae that are grown at a low pH that we'd expect by the end of this century. 
Well, that's worrying news. Just tell me, what are we expecting by the end of the century? We've seen a 7% change in pH already. Really, we're looking at a pH drop of around 0.3, and that doesn't sound like much, but you have to remember it's, it's a logarithmic scale, a bit like the Richter scale, in fact. So that, you know, we're looking at changes of, say, between 100% to 150% increase in acidity of the water. So that's a big change. So I should point out that it depends what our future emission scenario is. You know, if we were to stop CO2 emissions in the near future, it's possible that we can control this drop in pH and it won't be as significant as that. That's based on what's called the 8.5 scenario and uh, that's kind of like a, a business-as-usual scenario at the moment. So that's kind of what we expect by the end of this century. So you mentioned shellfish. What about fish? Yeah, fish is something that's uh, been a focus of some acidification research because um, there's been some evidence... It, internationally that um, a lower pH might affect the neurosensory ability of fish, so things like hearing and smell and vision and that kind of thing. So there's been quite a lot of evidence for that. So some of my colleagues have looked at that in terms of snapper and kingfish, and particularly looking at their larvae. And generally the results are fairly good news in the fact that although there is some indication Uh, in both species in terms of their swimming ability and maybe an effect on hearing, there was actually an increase in survival of the larvae under a a future lower pH scenario. So at the moment, it's certainly not bad news for a snapper and a kingfish. How does New Zealand and the acidity of our coastal waters compare to the rest of the world? Are we on a par with everywhere else? Are we going faster, slower? Um, I'd say we're pretty much on a par for, uh, with everybody else. I mean, uh, certainly in terms of the open ocean, as I say, that's largely dominated by the atmospheric signal and the, the temperature of the water. I mean, I say it's particularly in the coastal areas. You know, if you have a, an area which is um, particularly affected by lots of organic input and nutrient input, for example, that can really drive down the pH in the water. And we have a few examples of, of that in New Zealand, but then again, so do many other countries as well. And there is a need to link this with other things now you know ocean acidification isn't happening in isolation it's just part of the whole climate story clearly we've got a warming and to some extent deoxygenation as well and so it needs to be considered in a more uh, kind of um, i use the word holistically there but with the other aspects of climate change thanks cliff cliff law is a marine biogeochemist at niwa I'm Alison Balance in this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ, first aired on the 15th of April 2021. It featured a story from the very extensive Our Changing World archive. You can find the archive and listen again at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. The website is also where you can sign up for our free email newsletter. And if you click the Podcasts tab at the top of the page, you'll find all of RNZ's podcasts and video series. Have fun. Follow us on your favourite podcast app and follow us also on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science. If you ever feel like dropping us a line, you can email us at ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. Many thanks for your company. Stay safe and catch you next time. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.